to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Hello, I'm James Riley. Welcome to this Innovation Oz webinar, Building an Australian Technology Sector to Drive Economic Growth. Before we get started, that is about the broadest topic that we could come across for the sector that, that we look at. But um, let me introduce our panellists today. Dr. Larry Marshall, Chief Executive of the National Science Agency, the CSIRO. Adrian Beer, the Chief Executive Officer at Metz Ignited, one of the Commonwealth's industry growth centres. Sally-Ann Williams, CEO of the very successful deep tech incubator, Cicada Innovations. And Shana Glover, co-founder and Director of Robotics Australia. Welcome, everyone. I'm going to start with you, Larry. This is a question really just to frame things, I suppose. I think 2020 has been obviously an incredible year. Today has been an incredible day. But uh, 2020 has been an amazing year where global markets have changed substantially. The way we work has changed substantially, obviously. And the way we organise our industry has begun to change around things like paying perhaps a, a little bit more attention to sovereign capability and those kinds of issues. So given that trying to come up with policies to build an Australian technology sector, we're actually grinding up against problems that we've, or challenges that we've faced for decades. It's been an ongoing perennial issue. We've consistently rated quite poorly for economic complexity, which translates to the complexity or the added value of the products and services that we put to market and put to global markets. So what are we now addressing here? How do we come to grips with that fundamental issue of economic complexity? Yeah, thanks, James. This is a multi-decadal problem, as in looking into the past. And today, Australian companies do less than 2% of Australian companies do new-to-the-world innovation. If you compare that to a country like Canada, that's of similar size, has a similar resources-based economy and a very similar culture, they're closer to 40%. So how did they get from 2 to 40? Because if you look at them a few decades ago, they were where we are now. And in a sense, that resources, commodities type thinking that's been so successful in our history has trapped us. But when we dig up a commodity, and this is silica sand from a beach, mineral sands, we can ship it overseas like we do with coal or our other commodities, or we can decide to add value to it and turn it into this, which is titanium ink. And when we make that decision to do that here, we create jobs and we create economic growth. This is worth about 100 times more than this by unit of weight. So there's more profit in this, which means we can pay higher wages and we have a better economy if we're willing to take the risk to do it. And if we're really brave, we might take this titanium ink and turn it into a unique medical product. This is a rib cage that saved a man's life in New York a couple of years ago that we made here in Australia. The step up in value here is hard to calculate because life is pretty priceless, but it's at least another 100 times more valuable than this or 100,000 times more valuable than this. Now, it's easy to say, stop making commodities and start adding more value to create more economic benefit here. But when you're on a 30-year up and to the right economy, there's not much motivation to change anything. Enter COVID-19 and suddenly we had a really good reason to learn how to make things here again and make them in a much more innovative way. And I think there's a lesson there. Final thing I'll say, James, is 
the science and technology is amazing at solving these seemingly impossible problems. And for example, Australia didn't run out of surgical masks because Australian science and Australian manufacturers got together and invented a way to remake a surgical mask using local materials because you couldn't even get the material overseas, let alone the finished mask. So we can do it. COVID was a stimulus to change it. And if we can bottle that collaboration going forward, we really can drive, I think, something that we've been trying to drive for 30 years, true innovation economy, not just a resources economy. All right. Sorry, I'm just going to go to Adrian Beer now. What are we talking about when we talk about building an Australian technology sector? I mean, technology sector means different things to different people. I suppose for one of definition, we want something as broad as possible because we want a broad horizontal platform that drives into all of our industries, don't we? Yeah, definition is really important. And I think also in commercialisation, which is another term that's got a broad meaning. When we talk about Australia's technology sector, we've done a huge amount of investment in technology and innovation that's improved production processes in our primary industries because they've been a major revenue stream for the country and have been contributor to our economy. But really, there's a lot of technology that sits underneath those primary supply chains that makes those profitable and successful and sustainable. We're talking about commercialising that technology and making it available for the broader market. As you go through a mining boom, as we have three successive booms over 25 years, we continue to invest in technology to improve production outcomes for primary producers. But we haven't looked so much at commercialising that innovation and making it into products and services that we can sell. And by commercialising that innovation here locally rather than losing it offshore, it's a great opportunity to build and grow Australia's capability, leveraging where we've got competitive strength. So Sally Ann Williams, as the CEO at Cicada Innovations, you obviously see a lot of companies that are doing, well, new to the world research, but plus kind of commercial innovation. So where are the gaps that you can see? I mean, between what Larry's talking about, the you know sand on a beach to a 3D printed ribcage, there's a fair distance to travel. Well, what are you seeing as the gaps in that? It's a great question. I want to come back to something that Larry said before I touch into something Adrian said, because I think the answer lies there. And I think part of what we haven't had is a burning platform. We haven't had a need to do this. We haven't had that impetus and that requirement to innovate or perish, so to speak. And I think what's really interesting about this time for us is the rest of the world has had that. If I look at Canada, if I think about other countries, the GFC affected so many countries in such a huge way that they had to look at job creation differently. And they understood that in that market with what happened at the outcome of that, that a complex economy and complex companies that are founded in R&D, so R&D leaders, are actually far more sustainable and far more resilient when a crisis comes, regardless of what that crisis is. And we're just learning that lesson probably for the first time in my lifetime, I think, almost in Australia. We have had a recession in my lifetime, but I was a kid and I don't really remember it, but I don't think it hit us in the same way. And we fell back on what we've always traditionally done. So when I think about what the opportunity is for me now, on the one hand, we can look at the situation that we've all been living with. I don't want to um, you know, minimize the challenges. It's been really hard. And people across Australia, there's so many people that have lost their jobs and it's been a really difficult time and particularly for our friends in Victoria you know the tough sort of situation that they've found themselves in for 
such a long time is tremendous impact socially, economically and you know, mentally and physically on them. But out of this, we have a burning platform to transform. And when I look at the kind of companies and the kind of opportunities that are going to come out from this, if I had a crystal ball to gaze ahead 30 to 40 years, I think we'd see some great innovations. And I can give you one example of this. And it is a cicada story, but it's a cicada story that touches every single university. Well, not every single university, but a large number of universities and hospitals in Australia. And it's a company that was born out of a very same sort of situation. So Speedex, which is one of our largest residents here and do diagnostics and therapeutics and are growing like crazy, were actually born out of the GFC when the two founders were made redundant from their lab work. And it was that moment where they had a decision to make to go find another job or build a job and build a company. And thankfully, they did. Two female founders, and they built this company. And it's now, you know, selling their products and services to the largest labs around the world. And so we have a once in a lifetime, probably for me, opportunity, I think, to harness that and to look at where the capabilities lie in our system. And they are there. They're in industry. They're in our universities. They're in CSIRO. They're in places like Cicada. They're in our startups and connect the dots and actually say, we're going to supercharge this. We're not going to go at a pace and let it go on its own, but we're going to get behind it. We're going to back it with money, with resources, with infrastructure, remove the impediments that would take these companies 20 to 30 years to bring something to market, and we're going to turbocharge it, and we're going to build a much more complex economy, just like Canada's done, like South Korea's done, like other countries have done before us. And we're going to actually make sure that we are in the next crisis, we're actually capable of continuing to iterate and develop new R&D companies that bring things to market and are creators for not just for us, but for the world. All right. Thanks, Sally. And and now, Shana Glover, to bring you into the conversation, I guess there's going to be a lot of talk about collaboration, a lot of talk about industry, university research, that kind of thing. I wonder, can I get you to describe robotics in Australia? How are we at the robotics game? I think, for want of a better term, punching above your weight, I think we've done quite well in various areas of robotics. I'm very intrigued with your virtual screen behind you because it clearly implies collaboration with industries and quite diverse industry too. So can you just step us through that? Yeah, it's a good question, James. And I think, sadly enough, robotics in Australia is very fragmented today, which is why we formed the National advocacy group of Robotics Australia and there is a global an international robotics study that was only completed and the results have just come out and Australia has slipped from 25th to 33rd internationally in our robotics capability and there are only 35 companies in that study you know obviously who are more advanced with robotics so yeah we're not going in the right direction and really to to Adrian's point there's such an opportunity the reason of the cross-sector picture is if you work with these robotics companies, the technologies they develop, they might be doing something in mining, but those technologies can be used in agriculture, forestry, as well as applications into space. So we sort of got to move away from that very industry-specific focus in Australia because we limit these SMEs to be able to commercialise or grow at, at a greater rate. And really touching on what Adrian said, I see the transformation of industry four we've certainly we're on that pathway in all these industries and we develop technologies in great universities and csiro but we don't back ourselves we don't commercialize those i don't know why we don't seem to like our own developments we will go and buy international products and robotics is certainly one of those and put those into our industry and that really hurts us because we're not 
you know, we can't develop a, a new growth industry which will generate jobs on the back of something like robotics. We tend to buy overseas solutions and they're often the OEM solutions in a lot of these robotics areas. And it's not to say I don't, I, I like our OEMs, but a lot of those solutions are very close proprietary and they're really locking us out of productivity from some of these technologies as well. So it's really important, I think, that Australia takes on some of its own more technology, support the Australian-made sticker. And it's not only the manufacturer of those things like robotics, but it's the maintenance in the field. You don't just put any technology out into mining or agriculture without actually having to maintain it. You know, you build capability in your trade sectors as well to be able to maintain those solutions. So, yeah, I think uh, we're on a precipice. We're going to keep going the right way which I think we can, or at the moment, there's a doorway that we've got a choice, left or right. And, and certainly the results from that robotic study are showing at the moment we're, you know, we're not going the right way, so we need to do something about it. So I guess the shape of the government's response, the economic response anyway to COVID, has had a fair focus on manufacturing, on sovereign capability, on those issues. Is that a fair place, given that manufacturing is a horizontal industry also, like digital, is that a fair place to start building a building block for a, an Australian technology sector. Maybe, Larry, do you want to have a crack at that? And then Adrian. I'm sure everyone have a perspective, James. So just something you said there about horizontals. We think of manufacturing and digital as very similar horizontals. And if you like, robotics is the classic link <laughs> between digital and you know the, the world of the imagination and the physical world. And it worries me, Shana's point, and it has done for some years. And when we created Data61, we very deliberately tried to build links with the strongest universities in Australia for robotics. SORA has got a great history helping the mining industry with automation, but we wanted to go broader than that because we think there's an opportunity to rethink the way we think of manufacturing. The US went through the Rust Belt era in the 70s and 80s where all the white goods got shipped off to China or India or whatever to get manufactured. Um, we don't want to bring that back. There's a reason we stopped doing that. There's a reason we stopped making cars here too. But that doesn't mean we can't make electric cars or lithium batteries or 3D printed solar cells, things that we need to use in our own country where there is a big enough market to actually manufacture them. I think there's a huge opportunity there. And again, from the COVID example, Australia doesn't have many raw materials that you can make a surgical mask from. But in about three weeks, working with three or four little manufacturers, SMEs, we built production quantities of these rolls. This is a, a wool-based polymer. So it's mainly wool with a bit of polymer in it. It's actually better than a surgical mask in terms of the amount of bacteria that it stops. And so to Sally's point, forced to innovate because we couldn't find a replacement, we made something that's actually better. We also built Australia's first mask certification. It's a NATA accredited facility. Australia's never had one before to certify masks. And guess what? A lot of the things that we were importing in our urgency weren't as good as the things that we were making here. But a bit like our actors and actresses, they've got to go overseas and become famous before we celebrate them back here. I think there's a lesson in that to change. But manufacturing horizontal, digital horizontal, the other one is social science. So when I took over Sorrow, we restructured into market verticals to really aim our science much more deliberately at the market. But there are three business units we created deliberately to go both ways, horizontal and vertical. Data 61 is one because they're in every business unit, but they also have their own market. Manufacturing is the other. And land and water, believe it or not, 
maybe you haven't heard of them, they're the ones doing work on bushfires and resilience and protecting our natural environment. Um, that's their vertical market, but they're in every business unit because that's where all of our social science is. And innovation doesn't get adopted unless people fall in love with it, unless they want to use it. Human behavior is such a game changer for climate change, circular economy, sustainability in general, and health. So we found social science is equally important to digital manufacturing for our ability to actually deliver innovation, deliver real solutions from science. Adrian, I'm wondering if you wanted to have a crack at this idea as a horizontal uh, industry manufacturing or advanced manufacturing is a good place to start for uh, building an Australian tech sector or do we need to look at it differently? It's a hygiene factor that we have to have. If we want to convert the technologies that are available in our sectors that we've already developed and innovated and we want to commercialise and productise them here locally, then we need an advanced manufacturing capability to do that. You can't have one without the other. At the same time, there's no point building a manufacturing sector if we've got nothing to produce. So there's this great depth of technology that has come out of the resilience of multiple primary industries that are there for the taking there to be commercialised and productised, that they are dependent. It's critically important that we've got the ability to have a modern manufacturing capability to support it. Otherwise, it won't be sustainable. Coming from a global corporate background and coming back into the Australian market, one of the big challenges that we see for the innovators in Australia is there's no local ecosystem to support them productising in Australia, and that's what we need to fix. It's very easy from coming from a global corporate to come to Australia and take our technology out of our research sector because there's no local competing market for that technology. And so really investing and growing that capability here locally, helping companies productise and commercialise. The research and innovation that they've already done, you know, there's a lot of questions about adopting technology versus developing technology. I think that's one of the key points is there's actually a lot of technology already available in our sectors that just hasn't been productised and commercialised. We don't have to start from the bottom of the curve and invent a whole bunch of new things and then start productising them. That's a 30-year lifespan. We've got this advanced capability in robotics and automation. We've got it in data and analytics. We've got some amazing technology around sustainability and, and managing remote energy storage. And then you think about the future of our critical minerals roadmaps. All of these are capabilities we have here, but they're not commercially available for everyone to use. And so productizing and commercializing them, making them available for multiple markets is going to need a modern manufacturing capability. So without it, we can't do it. So, Sally-Ann Williams, you're talking about the burning platform earlier. Okay, so we've now got that burning platform. What's missing here? Like, you're involved in an incubator that uh, services companies that are trying to take IP out of large organisations or out of institutions and commercialise. So, what's the missing piece? There's quite a few things that are missing, but the number one thing is the connectivity between it all. So as an incubator, we actually bring in and help companies grow and their great ideas and what they come with comes from anywhere. They don't just come from universities or from the CSR. Sometimes they come out of industry spin-outs from people in industry who are fed up with a problem and they decide to just leave their organisation and start working on it. But what happens when they come here is we connect them to whoever and whatever they need to support them, right? So if we know somebody in CSRO that's working on it, we connect the dots with them. Anastasia from Fluorosat here has a whole bunch of arrangements and licensing with CSRO on her agricultural product and her data and her services that she's bringing to farmers and in market, right? But she also has relationships with other industry players. She has relationships with VCs that we introduce her to. So it's the connectivity between them. But I think there is one thing that's missing. 
thing, and I'm going to call it out, I don't think industry in Australia has the appetite historically or has the track record of building things here. They love to adopt it, they love to take it and use it from somewhere else, and they've missed the boat for a very long time in thinking about building what's new. And I come out of a large corporate and I was sitting in the research unit at Google for a number of years. And what's different about the types of companies that we want to build here and we want to attract here, these R&D companies, and we want them to be multinationals. We just love them to start and be born here. What's different about an R&D company, they bring a product to market, but they reinvest, you know, sometimes up to 20% straight back into R&D building the next thing and the next thing, and the next thing. And they do it because they see the value to their bottom line and they see what it leads to in the long term. And it's about their long-term sustainability. So it's not just about sales and revenue generation. They have a long-term perspective about who they want to be and the types of problems they want to solve in the world. And I've got to say it, industry in Australia is nowhere near there. There are some, there are some, there are other handfuls and we can point to them and they're the ones that have been thriving and we've relied on during COVID to bring things to market. But by and large, most of our industry is not investing at that level. The other thing I would say is government needs to look at this as well. So there's been a lot of talk about R&D investment and I think we still need government to be investing for the long-term in blue sky research. It's that blue sky crazy stuff that we want to achieve through, you know, moon to Mars and things like that. The technology that's going to fall out of that, the science that's going to come from that, you know, in 10 and 20 years time, it's going to be the things that changes our outcomes for human health and well-being. It's going to impact our lives in really positive ways. And we need that. But the translation piece is the key. And that commercialization and translation piece, it does take industry, it takes government, and it also takes the enabling, like, what are the tax reforms that we can do? How can we make it easier for our founders? How can we be founder friendly as a country? to actually make it a real incentive to get behind these people when they do want to go down that road because it's a long and lonely road to bring a product to market and to take that research and commercialise it and there's lots of road bumps. But if we can make it more founder-friendly, not only will we have more people doing it and particularly now as we see people unfortunately due to circumstances leaving the university sector and, and through job losses, there's an opportunity with that human capital, that talent, that ability, if we could make it friendly to them and we could galvanise around them, I think we could see, you know, some really phenomenal companies emerge. Again, you know, I'm thinking long-term and, and ahead, but we could see some things that emerge that would actually last us, you know, generations and set us in good stead for the future. Okay. I, I want to get a comment from Adrian Beer here. I'm sort of interested in one industry where we perform exceptionally well is obviously mining and resources. We've been talking earlier about it. our extraction industries are highly efficient, but we haven't necessarily translated the efficiencies within and the scale of those industries into domestic technology capability, although, you know, there's obviously exceptions to that. So, how do we do that? Because there are a few industries where we have Australian companies that have global scale, that have a supply chain backing them now, that has the potential to surface a lot of technology. So, how do we do that? Look, I think the size of the industry investment in the mining sector has built this capability that we have to do fantastic innovation and research that the investment has been driven for production outcome and production benefit. And so one of the challenges that's historical that I think Sally Ann's really called out is the, the ownership and protection of IP that comes with developing that innovation for competitive advantage in terms of reducing position on a cost curve or, you know, optimising efficiency against another producer. 
what we are now seeing is a real change in the attitude of these large producers is that two things. One, the innovation they developed on their own isn't being advanced in a commercial marketplace because they hold it in their own IP. And so automation in mine haul trucks in the Pilbara, that's still on version 1.0, but it's been running for 20 years because there isn't a competitive marketplace of vendors that are competing and improving technology and advancing the capability. So now those companies, those large mining producers in particular, are seeing that they need a marketplace for that technology to scale and grow. So they are now releasing that IP and making it more available in the local market. I think that's probably the first point. I think that the second point is translating the outcomes of research to make available for multiple other sectors and not doing innovation just within an industry is also key. Because if I take the robotics and automation sector, I'll use Shana's sector as an example, and if I just look at mining, or if I just look at oil and gas, or if I just look at agriculture, or if I just look at defence, any one of those segments is not significant enough to invest. But you need to invest when you look at the aggregated demand for robotics and automation across all of those sectors. And global investors don't want to invest in technology that only serves one market. It's the last thing they want. They want something that's got multiple markets so that they've got some security or assurance that their return on investment will come no matter what the cycle is of the industry they serve because they've got the diversification strategy. So breaking down these industry silos as consumers of technology and investing in a segment that becomes a producer of technology, recognising that as an economic contributor is, I think, the direction we need to move. There's been a question on here. Someone's talking about Scott Morrison's comments from a couple of weeks ago where he suggested, and I think he was actually referring to SMEs rather than the whole breadth of the uh, innovation sector, but he said we want to be world-class adopters rather than creators, and it caused a bit of a, a furor. But I guess it's worth noting we can't do everything, and in any sector we are going to rely on imports of technology. So finding our way to the products and services that will be most valuable to our economy and to our job creation prospects is tricky. So Larry, we're putting your chips on the table and I, I guess there's a little bit more appetite now for trying to pick winners from a policy perspective. Where do you put your chips? Yeah, so I agree with Sally's analysis of the where the gap is, but the other thing that's missing is what you just said, market vision. Being able to see a different future, see where the market could go and how you could disrupt it and make the market go there, how you could create that future for yourself, and then having the guts to actually put it all on the line to bet on that future, which of course is what really good startups do. So Atlassian did that and built an amazing outcome. That market vision is hard to come by. It's what makes Silicon Valley so successful. Israel has followed Silicon Valley really successfully in that way. So in, in Australia and in Saro in particular, in particular, we've tried to define, not pick winners, but not pick losers either. We've tried to define six really clear swim lanes where we can direct our science and we can create a bit of pool for the 39 universities we work with to also direct their science into those swim lanes areas where Australia can be really strong, but also areas where Australia has major challenges to overcome, like in healthcare or in mining or in energy or in agriculture and food. And then most recently, James, we launched our 12 missions, which are totally co-created with industry and academia and us kind of as the bridge between the two. And they are probably the most aggressive we've done for really focusing on a market vision 
example, in the last five years, Syro spun out or helped create about 100 companies, either helped create or helped reinvent, but major change to about 100 companies. In our whole history, 100 years before that, we created about 100 companies. So something's changed in the ecosystem, the pace of company creation, company reinvention, there's, there's a pull starting to happen, an appetite changing in industry to want to actually take a bit more risk. So that's a good sign. If we can get more people behind these missions and really deliver real solutions to some of these problems, like Future Feed, which solves the seemingly impossible problem of how do you take the emissions out of the cattle industry, but not the profits, and in fact, this not only gets rid of the emissions, it actually increases the profits. It's a great example of how science can break through. And this is now a unique Australian company backed by Woolworths producing a unique product, not a commodity, but a unique product that the world wants to buy because there are very few ways to remove emissions from the cattle industry. And science has found a way and created value in the process. Anyone else want to talk about either risk aversion or risk appetite? I mean, I've kind of, in fact, I got chastised last week. I was talking to Andrew Charlton about an alpha beta report that he'd done. And I, I was talking about, you know, culturally in Australia, we are risk averse, I suggested, and less entrepreneurial perhaps than other places in the world, which is probably is a generalization. He was suggesting that that's simply not the case. And we can look at a variety of industries. And again, mining is one where we've built these giant, not just giant companies, but very efficient and not just very efficient companies. Sorry. I mean, like there's a whole ecosystem there. And it's the kind of the kind of sector that I guess we would aspire to in what you would broadly describe as technology. Like it has the whole ecosystem is intertwined from the brokers and analysts to the geologists to the people who drive the trucks. There are connections between all of these people in a way that much of the rest of the technology sector doesn't have. Sorry, very long-winded, Adrian. What's on risk aversion? Where are we at? Yeah, risk aversion. I think the, the necessity is driving a greater appetite for risk or a willingness to try new things that we haven't seen before. And I think there's probably a few drivers to that. Sustainability of some of the traditional industries are going to require new technologies to achieve that. So therefore, the willingness to take on new technologies and risks, the barriers lowering in regards to that access to international markets in the current climate is a challenge and therefore a real push to locally innovate and then be willing to try things here locally is great. It's, you know, we're really starting to see a drive. We've seen two types of companies in the mining technology sector with those that are enabling remote capabilities that have never really been fully embraced by the industry because of the risks associated with handing over control to parts of a complex process to a technology vendor. Now they've had no choice and therefore have sort of committed to that last mile of automation and are getting great results. Now they want to implement those things remotely into other mining operations around the world and the technology vendors are sitting here in Australia doing that. Another area and, and one that I know talking with Shana on the robotics and automation sector the amount of pull coming out of the experience of managing complex industrial value chains in remote locations, there's so many other industries that are wanting to gain from that experience and understand how that can apply to their sectors. So uh, Shana and I have been talking about a number of those robotics and automation companies who have been traditionally serving one or two industries, now being asked to innovate to support other sectors. And maybe Shana's got a few specific examples, but there's a huge demand for it. 
Yeah, I think, Adrian, and, and really to the question that James had, I actually don't think Australia is risk-averse. I, I see us as the most amazing bunch of people who really, you know, we're, we're the give-it-a-go kind of culture, but I think we can be a little insular, and that's probably driven by even our proximity as a very big island. So the ability to work and think and interact across industry unlocks our thinking a lot. So if you start thinking about mining, what Adrian and I have been talking about, it is a proof of concept or can be for smart cities. You know, and Australia, I think, is behind the rest of the world when you see a lot of the smart cities programs that are, that are going on. A mine has a more controlled environment and so it's a great place to actually start to pioneer smart cities, you know. So it's the full integration of robotics and then we can actually pull in some of the road-going autonomy companies and that's what we've been doing in mining to accelerate how good the autonomy is by actually going out to road-going autonomy companies and giving them a more near-term market to sell their products because the road-going space is going to be a, a while till you can actually really commercialise it. So I think it's just sometimes, you know, back to the point that I think Larry said, where is our vision? Where's our missions? You know, like the let's go to Mars, let's go to the moon. Let's have mining be the proof of concept for smart cities and accelerate smart cities around the world, but under a more controlled environment. You know, I just think there's such opportunity there for us. I just want to acknowledge we've got a lot of questions coming in, so I'm going to try and get through a few of those right now. So I'm not sure who wants to have a go at this one, but Someone asking about the openness of the Australian market or the Australian cultural persona, I, I guess. Do Australians give away too much with the shift towards making technology and data open access rather than adopting more proprietary models? In fact, do we need to learn from China in this respect how much Australian-grown research is pushed offshore? You know, I want to uh, have, a, have a go at whether or not we're too open to these things. Sally Ann. Yeah, I actually disagree entirely. Now, this may be biased because I've spent, you know, so much time in a software engineering company for 13 years, but I actually think we don't collaborate enough. I think the more collaboration and the more translation, and we've all touched on it in different ways, and I think Shana and, and Adrian were just touching on it, the more that we can actually break down silos between industry and research and academia, the more translation we're going to get in between and the more opportunity we're going to get for people to solve problems at those intersections between disciplines and between spaces. There's a separate issue about why does technology go offshore? And I think that has to do with a multitude of different things, right? You know, because we don't necessarily always have the capacity or the capability locally, depending on what it is to commercialise that locally and to do the product development. Some areas we do and we're developing it, some we're really far behind and we actually just need to build that. So if people are licensing technologies, they're going offshore, I'm going to call it tax breaks. You know, we have got, again, it comes back to this founder-friendly ecosystem. If we want people to be investing their years of their life, literally years of their life to productize something and to commercialize it, how do we make it an incentive for them to do so and for others to invest in them? So I actually think we've got more silos than we need. I think we're getting better at breaking down those, but I think we just need much more openness across our sector and actually coming together would actually enable us to go a lot faster. You make an interesting point. I'm going to go to another uh, of these questions from Matt Smith, who's asking for the whole panel, are you seeing a movement in federal and state governments to buy more products or services locally? I mean, this is uh, on procurement issues. I'm always interested in this question because I think there is a massive cultural cringe in this country and the governments are not the only ones, but as far as purchasing from smaller local companies, there seems to be a bias against those companies in favour of larger offshore companies. Larry, you had your hand up. What have you got to say on that? 
Yeah, so I've worked on a really exciting project with both the federal government and the New South Wales government. And I believe Victoria and South Australia and Queensland are also looking at similar things. But like the US SBIR program, which is a program that lowers the bar for small companies and um, SMEs to sell to the government, which can be quite painful. SARA has been pretty deeply involved in this because often the value we add to an SME, and we work with almost 2,000 every year, is not so much the science, it's actually helping them navigate the system, which is frankly a bloody complicated system and, and quite difficult if you're a small company. The other thing I was going to touch on from Sally Ann's point, yeah, you know, this cultural cringe question. So I did six startups and was lucky enough to get two of them to IPO, but every single one of them failed. And I want to be crystal clear, everyone failed. If I'd built them here, they would have gone bankrupt, right? So that's the nature of startups. And in fact, I've decided after 30 years of building startups that they actually have to fail in order to find success. And the failure is the catalyst. We're a country that does not embrace failure. We cringe from failure. We do everything possible to avoid failure. And I think that's, you know, when your economy is stable and going up to the right, you don't want to take risk. You don't want to wave your arms around and you see failure as a bad thing. But in other countries, Israel, the US, they see failure as the critical catalyst to success. So that's how I interpreted what you said. I, I really think that's a change we need to make. I'm going to go to Adrian with this question. Also from Sally's point earlier, there's the need for more collaboration and more openness and more kind of smashing of ideas and institutions together. I guess I want to ask this question of you, Adrian, and uh, it might be a little bit tricky given that you are running one of the industry growth centres, but something Michael Biercek from Q Control said to me of the Australian government programs generally, but also the state government programs around it, is that there are so many fragmented programs that are aiming at smaller niches. He described it as an armada of canoes. How can we integrate or uh, combine some of these programs so that the programs themselves have a little bit more critical mass? Thank you, James, for that. Now, I think there's probably two or three points I want to try to cover in the answer. First of all, collaboration with triple helix models and, and industry and, and research collaboration. We need two types of industry collaboration, consumers and producers of technology. We do a lot of collaboration with consumers of technology, but not with producers. And in the research areas as well, we see almost like noble cause in the creation of some of our innovation and technology. And when you say, how are you going to make a dollar out of this technology and how do we reinvest that dollar back into research, we miss that commercial mongrel, for lack of a better word, in our innovation ecosystem. And that makes it a less appealing place for people to incubate technologies. It's not seen as okay to want to make a dollar out of technology. But if you don't, then how are you going to sustain a sector? So, you know, probably jumping around a bit, but in the same way as in the funding models that we provide to support innovation and the fear of failure that we talk about at the other end of town, when we talk about big consumers of innovation, they are tying together pieces of technology with sticky tape and chewing gum. And they're very willing to have a go. And that's the Australian innovative way. We're in the middle of nowhere. We've got a big problem. Let's see what we've got around us. Let's find a way to make it work. We've got this great culture of innovation, but fear of failure. And it's just this strange mix that's sort of grown up in our economy. But to overcome that collaboration needs to be with industry participants that are going to benefit from the innovation and research outcomes. 
and people who want to make a dollar out of it. Because if we don't make this place an attractive place for entrepreneurs to make a dollar, they're going to go somewhere else. So that commercial mongrel, a sort of big smile out of you, Larry. How are you trying to foster commercial mongrel inside the CSIRO and get some uh, translated outcomes out of the research that you guys are doing? So actually, Sally and I know the founder of Q Control quite well, and Sally quietly mentored him in the background to get him to see a vision differently from being up, growing up and being a professor, which is how many university PhDs and postdocs are, are trained to go on this professor path. And when we funded him to build Q Control through our venture fund, it was just it was like looking at myself 30 years ago, seeing him go through this pain of, oh, what should I do? And, you know, I'm doing this great science, but can I build something? And, oh, would, would it be evil to make money from this? And, you know, this going through this whole sort of crisis of character. And so many of our great scientists go through that journey. And the more of them that we can help go along that path, the more we can tap into that amazing intellectual property wellspring that we have in Australia. So to me, it's the two sides of this problem, right? Can we get industry to lean in a little bit more and take a bit more risk and fun stuff? And they absolutely do that in mining. Mining is a very mature, highly innovative sector. But can we get other sectors to learn from what mining has done? And can we equally get our professors, our students? Because let's face it, the innovation doesn't happen in universities. It happens in industry. And the startups don't happen in universities, or sorrow for that matter. They happen in industry founded by the students who the universities produce. And so that's the gap in the middle if we can grow that. And of course, Sally spent her whole career as I have doing that and now running Cicada, who we partner with whenever we can, because they're just a fabulous organization. And we have a common mission. How do we create more of this 10 billion worth of research that the government puts into the broad research sector? How do we use that to create a whole economic pillar for our economy based on great Australian science? We're up to uh, 50 minutes and we've only just started talking about quantum, which is amazing because quantum is an area where we've got Michael Pierce and Q Control and obviously Michelle Simmons and Earth Silicon Quantum Computing also. So good to see some genuine commercially focused action in a very deep tech area of Australian research. Okay, so another question from Andrew Scott. He's saying the pace of iteration and experimentation historically has shown it can drive innovations. We need to be able to stimulate faster and more and reduce barriers. This is to Sally Ann's point. I'm going to put this to Shana. How can we stimulate, provide more funding opportunities and environments for more commercial experimentation? And he's ending this query with a bring on a future robotics fund. I guess that's uh, chips on the table uh, (laughs) (laughs) declaration. Yeah, I think I love the the comment of the commercial mongrel and to call out the METS program, uh, the accelerator program that Adrian ran or had support for here in Queensland. I saw huge value out of that to get help with that commercial mongrel by connecting 14 companies in that accelerator, you know, heavily supported by, you know, mentoring and interacting with the industry. You know, I think those sort of programs, personally, I think we can't have enough of those. And to Andrew's point, you know, what we see with those companies and a lot of them that were in that cohort, they get to a certain small scale. So you can get the sub a million dollar funding in Australia, but we seem to have a fundamental gap on the kind of that next scale of funding that particularly when you look at some industries, you know, technology groups like robotics, it's not just software, it's software and hardware. And you get into some big bucks there. So to be able to develop those technologies. So we need to work out what are the more, you know, uh, Andrew's 
calling out is, you know, how do we have an Australian future fund that targets not everything? We need to do a few things well. And I think that would actually make a really big difference to the speed because a lot of these guys are definitely capital constrained and we don't seem to have the access to the, uh, the series, you know, fundraising rounds at the scale that certainly I see um, internationally. A comment on that. I'm kind of fascinated by that. I would have thought robotics would be one area where we have, you know, we've just been talking about mining and it's not just the mining sector, but where capital would be available. Is it because the traditional funders simply don't understand the tech or the tech's no good? What's What are we talking about here? I'm going to place the problem on the innovation is, again, for production outcome and benefit within operations and doesn't have the party in the mix that wants to commercialise and productize for everyone else. You look at the automation capabilities that have been developed in the mining sector, they've all been taken overseas. You know, modular mining, Tucson, Arizona, bought by Komatsu Limited, the autonomous trucks at Rio Tinto with GE propulsion drive systems out of Komatsu, Japan. Now, the practical application of that technology into an autonomous operation came with the skills and experience from the industry in Australia to make it work, that the investment in the automation process was more about solving the process problems, not finding the commercial vehicles for taking those products and services to market. So I think we need to be able to have a safe place for people to innovate and fail and try and try again and be able to try their products and and prototype them and test them so that we can iterate and we can fail fast and we can learn from it and we can do it again. We don't have that ecosystem here yet. We've got some examples, but unfortunately, they're the exception, not the norm, and we need a lot more of them. There are quite a few good ones out there. But I think the other thing I just want to highlight too is not all innovation happens in the research sector. I mean, one of the things that makes the mining industry so interesting is there are people in very dark, distant corners of the country that are far away from head office and can get away with a lot of things the try stuff that works and then the benefits become the norm and that technology then comes out for innovation. Incubation of ideas comes from the practical application of technology, trying something, failing, learning, trying again. We need some support systems around allowing that to happen rather than just investing in things we're either certain about or think tanks before the innovations happen. I have another question here. This is uh, This kind of goes to... Questions of data, everything is about data these days. So would regulation of non-personal data help or hinder Australian industries' innovation by levelling the playing field with overseas companies? So I guess we are trying to understand whether we're over-regulated in this country in terms of data. Anyone want to have a go at that? I don't know the complexity of regulation versus over-regulated. I don't think anyone would be clear on exactly what regulations apply. So complexity around the regulatory environment is just something we need to address. And that doesn't just go for data, that goes across the board. When we think about the application of new technologies and the role they're going to play in the future of our industries, you've got to combine data with cybersecurity and the risks around managing information as well. And that's an area, it's a whole layer that we don't have the infrastructure for yet that we urgently need and have to invest in. So... Regulatory reform around data and managing information also needs to consider security and cybersecurity because these, again, are foundation platforms for the next generation of technologies that are going to roll out. So I think it's complexity in the regulatory environment as opposed to necessarily, it's hard to tell which layer applies. All right, uh, Sally-Ann, I saw you had uh, something to add. 
Yeah, I, I just want to say this, that, you know, the data question comes up a lot and I think we need to really understand what we mean by data and whose data and who owns it. And we need to actually have a really serious discussion about this at a national level of what consumers expect and what I expect and what you expect about my personal data and my PII, so my personal information, who has access to that, who can see it, who has storage to it, what is interconnected with what else, who could possibly at some point in the future, if I sign up to health records, subpoena my health records for other means. You know, there's, it's a really actually a really complex and it's actually an ethical discussion as well as a safety discussion. And I don't think it's just about regulation. It's actually about society's expectations and how they shift and change over time. We're having a very different discussion about data today of what we were having five years ago and 10 years ago. And so we need to kind of bring that in together. The other thing about data that I want to say, because this gets into AI, and I think this is actually a really serious conversation. There's two parts to this is everybody is moving into AI or machine learning in their business. We don't have enough skilled people who really understand it. We don't have enough people around the boardroom and the C-suite who understand it and understand the risks and the ethical considerations. And I'll give you one example here if we pull out the finance sector. So I won't pick on anybody else, but I'm going to pick on finance right now because everybody's picked on the banks these days. So I'll join in for a little bit. But if you build an AI model around lending based on financial data right now, if you take the last 40 years, just 40 years, or even 30 years of financial data in Australia, it's inherently biased and unfortunately against women and against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And that's because women and Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people did not have access to opening their own bank accounts, mortgages, loans, or other things until, you know, sadly, some cases, my lifetime. So our data sets are inherently biased. And when we're talking about data, we need to talk about ethical data and we need to talk about ethical AI and we need to understand that. And right now, I have to say, the thing that terrifies me the most when we get into the data conversation is that our C-suite executives and our boardroom directors do not have the capability or the competency to know what questions to ask in their own organisations to make sure they're managing that well. Now, there's some fantastic groups of researchers and academics, both in CSIRO and our universities. Toby Walsh over at UNSW is, you know, an absolute leader in this space. But this is not a conversation we're having in the mainstream and we really, really need to because everybody wants access to data. But I'm like, you want that with great power comes great responsibility. So let's not just regulate it. Let's understand it and let's actually design it. And maybe we can have an ethical design principles and practices across every university course or something like that. So we're building capacity in our system to enhance and build things safely and securely for the betterment of humanity and society. And we're actually avoiding some of the unintended consequences of not understanding what's at our fingertips and, and how to really manage it well. Yeah, a lot of good points in there. This issue of boardroom diversity, diversity including just better understanding of technology and the application of technology is obviously a hugely important area. Look, we're just about to start winding up. I'm going to ask you, Larry, for a few brief comments. 2020 has obviously been a pretty weird year. We have a, a fire burning under us right now. It's caused a lot of us to change the way we think about policy in the future. I think the government response at federal and state levels has been very heartening. I think we've demonstrated a successful society and that we live in one, which is tremendous and it should give us great optimism for the future. So given that we had this odd budget in October, odd as in a strange time of year for it, we'll have another one coming up in, in May where I think we can expect a second tranche of thinking around some of the policy questions that we talked about today. What are you looking for, Larry Marshall? 
as a late Christmas present next May in terms of some changes to the way we go about building this technology sector we've talked about today? Oh, what do I want for Christmas, James? What a great question. Look, we've seen a large number of government departments, both state and federal, big corporates like Microsoft and universities like ANU really lean into our call out for missions. And the speed with which that missions program has accelerated and progressed, there's easily 100 million worth of funding behind missions now, which is extraordinary, I think. And we clearly tapped a nerve in the country that wanted to do something very specifically about bushfires, climate change, drought, agricultural productivity, creating a future protein industry for Australia, creating a hydrogen industry for Australia. There's clearly a pent-up demand for that. So my Christmas present, my wish, <laughs> is that keeps going and it turns into 200, 300 million worth of support going into next year because if we see that, we'll actually see that translate to real jobs, real growth and real economic prosperity. And we might even crack this 30-year Australia's innovation dilemma problem through something as bad as COVID, a disaster as big as COVID, we may actually end up cracking that 30-year problem, not through all the programs that we did, not through all the thinking that we did for the last three decades, but because of an external event that triggered a change in thinking. And I think that'd be a fantastic outcome to drive us out of this recession. And to Sally Ann Williams and then Adrian Beer, let's address that. What's the next thing on the policy agenda that needs to get moved on, action rather than words? Look, I think for me, it is how do we make this a founder-friendly country to do that enablement? And the reason that I say that is we're in a unique position. I'm excited. I, I share a lot of what Larry just said. During COVID, coming into COVID, we had a couple of spaces open in our building. I'm full. I'm absolutely full. I've had three companies knock on my door in the last two weeks. I've got nowhere to put them. So if you've got a spare building I could have, Larry, that'd be great. So for me, it's about how do we make it founder-friendly because we support these innovations and these ideas that will spill out of the challenges and the things that Larry's doing. They need to come and live somewhere and they need long-term support to get to that point where they can stand on their own two feet. And that's kind of how we fit together and we play together really well. So for me, it's like if anybody's got a building out there they'd like to donate to me, that'd be great. But from a policy setting, let's get some founder-friendly policies on the table so that people don't even think about leaving Australia. They don't get the Singapore temptation. They don't get the UK temptation that they actually go, oh my goodness, this is where I want to be. And they are very deliberate about staying here and growing because I think we've got everything we need to support them for the long term. All right. Adrian Beer, last word to you before I just wrap it up. Yeah, look, I hope that we recognise that the technology sector in Australia is an important segment of the economy in its own right, and that will make it attractive for innovators and those to develop technology here because they see a commercial opportunity to do so. We really need to recognise that we've got a fantastic technology capability, and if we can commercialise it locally, that we can productise, make revenue, make profit and reinvest in more technology, and that's going to increase our skills and our capability in the sector. So... Technology to be recognised as a segment of the economy would be fantastic. All right. I want to thank everyone who's joined us today listening. It's been a great discussion. If you take nothing else away from this uh, discussion, take commercial mongrel because, um, you know, we are on a burning platform and commercial mongrel might help. Uh, Larry Marshall, Adrian Beer, Sally Ann Williams and Shana Glover, who I think we just lost right at the end. Thank you very much for, uh, for joining us today. We're going to wrap up with that. Thank you. Thanks. Stay safe, everyone, and thanks so much, James. Always great to see you. 
hope you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is the Commercial Disco, wishing you a great week ahead.